The Edinburgh skyline is world-famous and dominated by one building, Edinburgh Castle. Standing 445 feet above sea level and perched on top of Castle Rock, archaeologists believe there have been fortified buildings here for around 3,000 years. The Celts made their home here. As far back as 6,000 CE, a Celtic tribe called the Votadini built Eden's Fort at the top of Castle Rock. The Votadini people were spread over an area that ranged from the Firth of Forth to the northeast of modern-day England. The capital of their territory was believed to have been the hill fort at Traprain Law, about 23 miles to the east of Edinburgh. Construction of Edinburgh Castle as we know it began around the 11th century with the building of St Margaret's Chapel, the oldest surviving building in Edinburgh. Over the centuries, the castle has been improved and strengthened by the addition of other structures, such as St David's Tower, destroyed then replaced by the Half Moon Battery, the Great Hall that dates back to 1511, and the mighty Portcullis Gate. Castle is believed to have been the most besieged building in Britain, so given its lengthy and bloody history, it's no surprise that it's also famously haunted. In an earlier episode, The Spectre of the Steward, we focused on one particular haunting, that of the ghostly encounters in the Governor's house. But the castle has many more spirits residing within its reinforced stone walls. Perhaps the most famous stories within the castle are not the apparitions of ancient kings, queens or governors, but two musicians who both met horrific ends. The Banshee is said to be a portent of doom to those unfortunate enough to hear her terrible, mournful wail. It's believed her cries herald the death of family members and belief in Banshees is strong in many Irish and Scottish families to this day. The headless drummer boy of Edinburgh Castle is equally feared. The rat-tat-tat of his drums were first heard in 1650 by a sentry posted on the walls, who was disturbed to hear drumming coming from the central courtyard of the castle. He stopped what he was doing and went to investigate the source of the noise. From his vantage point, he spotted the young laddie walking in a circle around the courtyard, passionately beating his drums. Given he was on duty, he rightly thought he should go and investigate and gingerly approached the drummer. As he neared them, the sentry staggered back in shock. He noticed that the figure, as clear as day and believed to have been a flesh and blood person up until that point, had no head. Disturbed by what he witnessed, he left the apparition to continue beating his march and went to inform his commanding officer. Naturally, he was accused of being drunk and the sentry was locked up for being drunk on duty. But there are reports that others witnessed and heard the drummer. Some staff swear the drumming went on into the early morning. Some time later, the realisation hit those who'd seen and heard the drummer that he'd been sounding the alarm. It was not long after the apparition's appearance that Oliver Cromwell's new model army marched and captured the castle. Although he's not been directly seen since, P. 
people have heard faint drumming in the dead of night that's been associated with the little drummer boy. Residents of Edinburgh should hope he's never sighted again though. Legend states that if his headless apparition is seen once more, ill luck is to befall the castle, for the sound of his drums is believed to warn residents of an impending attack. One of the oldest ghost stories in the city is that of the Phantom Piper. Legend has it that long ago, building work was being carried out to fortify the already formidable defences of the castle, when workmen came upon a tunnel which led into the rock below the castle. Given the smooth sides and the appearance of having been finished by metal tools, talk naturally turned to it being carved by the fairy folk. Historically, fairies in Celtic nations are not the sweet little fairy godmother types we've grown up with. Fairies are believed to be far more mischievous and downright wicked if you cross them. Due to this fear, there was a reluctance to step into the tunnel to investigate further. Despite repeated warnings and protestations, a brave young piper from Clan Ranald volunteered to head down and see what secrets the tunnel held. Convinced there was nothing to fret over, and with his trusty pipe slung under his arm, he set off down the tunnel, playing as he walked. Above ground, a group of locals, excited by the commotion, followed the sound of the pipes as they followed the route of the Royal Mile, downhill towards Holyrood Palace. About a quarter of a mile later, near the Tronkirk, the sound of the pipes ceased, and silence soon settled on the streets. The locals and the builders waited, expecting to see the piper return the way he'd set off. However, it became apparent that the piper wasn't returning, and was never seen again. Fearing for their own safety, and fearing that whatever had taken the piper would escape, it was decided that instead of sending a search party, the safest thing to do was to cover up the entrance to the tunnel. The piper did eventually return. It's said that the skirl of his pipes were often heard moving down the mile, retracing the young man's last steps, and as before, stopping when he gets to the Tronkirk. The story is a favourite of the local ghost tours, and occasionally still reported by passers-by, but the sounds of passing traffic and late-night revellers will no doubt muffle his playing these days. If you ever find yourself during the wee small hours near the Tron, stop what you're doing and cup an ear, for you may just hear the skirl of the pipes rising up from under your feet. A castle wouldn't be a castle without the ghost of a grey lady. Not to be outdone, Edinburgh Castle has one, perhaps two, wandering through its ancient hallways and corridors. In the Ghosts of Glam's Castle, we tell a tragic story and subsequent apparition of Lady Glam's, Janet Douglas, haunting the place she was happiest. 
Her ghost may also haunt the place where she met her dreadful end. Lady Glams was imprisoned in the castle in 1537, eventually being burned at the stake when found guilty of false charges of witchcraft, or, more likely, the attempted poisoning of the then King James V, who had a visceral hatred of the Douglas clan. Janet's execution took place on Castle Hill, just outside the entrance to the main castle and at the top of the Royal Mile. Horrifically, her young son was forced to watch his mother's agonising death. It's possible that the identity of the sorrowful apparition isn't that of Janet Douglas. It could be of a later inhabitant, Mary de Guise, who in a strange coincidence came to Edinburgh the year after Janet's death to marry the man who'd executed her, King James. Mary is probably best known as the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots, and acted as Queen Regent on behalf of her daughter from 1554 until her death six years later. A staunch Catholic, Mary was at odds with the growing influence of the Scottish Protestants, and upon her death, her body was held in St Margaret's Chapel, wrapped in cotton and lead for several months before agreement could be reached with Protestant nobles to allow her body to be returned to France. Although she lived mainly in Leith, her final resting place was to be Edinburgh Castle, and it's possible that her spirit's seen wandering through the more ancient parts of the castle. Whichever unfortunate woman is sent to haunt, she's been regularly sighted by visitors and staff wandering through the halls of the great castle, often weeping and wiping tears from her face, seemingly unable to find peace in the afterlife, and always dressed in a 16th century grey dress. In 1689, the year of the Jacobite Rebellion, English troops sent north to support King William were garrisoned in the castle. To help quell support for the deposed Catholic monarch, King James II, soldiers had been imprisoning suspected partisans of James within the castle, including a man named Lord Balcaris, an aristocrat and politician. Given his standing, Bilcaris was held in some degree of comfort compared to the common prisoner. Lord Bilcaris reported having a very unusual event happen to him on the 27th of July, as he was preparing to retire for the evening. Bilcaris was close friends with avowed Jacobite John Graham, Viscount Dundee, more commonly known as Major Bonnie Dundee. Dundee, a popular figure among Jacobites, was immortalised in poem by Sir Walter Scott, written nearly 200 years later. To the Lords of Convention, twas Claverhouse spoke, ere the King's crown go down, there are crowns to be broke. So each chevalier who loves honour in me, let him follow the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee. Dundee was known as a fine soldier who'd been tasked with patrolling the southwest of Scotland during the unrest and upheaval the times had brought. Back in the castle, Bulcaris had set himself for the evening and was preparing to get into bed when he felt someone standing behind him. Turning round, he was shocked to see Dundee stood in front of him, as clear as day and unmistakably him. Bulcaris assumed Graham had been arrested and attempted to speak to him, but he received no answer other than the Viscount greeting him with a smile 
before turning round and leaving the room. Curious, Balcaris followed him out, only to find he was nowhere to be seen. The next day he learned that Dundee had led a Jacobite army to victory at the Battle of Killycrankie. However, the victory came at great cost, as Dundee was mortally wounded, leading the charge of Highlanders against the government troops. He died the day he visited Bulcaris. This is the only recorded occasion that Bonnie Dundee has been spotted in the castle. Near the foot of Castle Hill lie the wonderful Ramsey Gardens. Modern by Old Town standards, they were built in the 1890s and have been home to many notable people over the years. The poet Alan Ramsey, biologist Patrick Geddes and sculptor George Clark Stanton all once called the gardens home. They're also home to a very different resident, a spectre whose origins and identity is unknown. What is known is that he appears out of time and his outfit predates the modern setting by around 200 years. It may not be his appearance that takes your attention initially though. He's seen to be struggling with and dragging a huge wooden chest behind him. I've always wondered what's in the chest and why he continues to drag it. To anyone looking at the castle for the first time, they see a foreboding, seemingly inescapable prison for those unfortunate enough to find themselves incarcerated there. But it's not escape-proof. In fact, there are a couple of notable escapees over the year. One successful, one not so successful. In 1681, Archibald Campbell, the ninth Earl of Argyll, and a prominent figure in Scottish society at the time, was imprisoned in the castle for the crime of refusing to subscribe to the Test Act. The Test Act was an act that required anyone seeking or already holding public office to take an oath, first and foremost of their devotion to the Protestant faith. The Earl was as clever as he was canny, as was his daughter, Lady Sophia Lindsay. She visited her father while imprisoned, bringing with her a male servant, whose head had been wrapped in bandages due to being on the wrong end of an apparent beating, resulting in some severe injuries to his face. When in her father's cell, he swapped clothes with the Earl. Then they left to return to her carriage, with Lady Sophia inconsolable with grief at how she found her father, thus giving further authenticity to her ruse and providing greater distraction from the subterfuge just undertaken. The Earl had escaped, for now. Four years passed and he was recaptured and imprisoned again in the castle, in an area now known as the Argyle Tower. Here, he was sentenced to be beheaded, with the punishment to be carried out at the Merkit Cross on the Royal Mile. There was no escape for Archibald this time. The Earl's ghost is said to be seen regularly within the tower, sombrely pacing back and forth in the room he spent his last night on earth in.
The other, less successful escape was made by a prisoner who hatched a plot to hide in the dung barrels that he presumed were taken down the Royal Mile and emptied there. What he didn't know was that the barrels were instead emptied over the side of the steep, rocky crags and into the Norlock below. His escape had been successful, but he met an horrendous end as he went the same way as the dung. His spirit has not taken his demise well, as numerous people have reported his unseen presence since his death. On some occasions, his invisible hands have tried to push witnesses over the battlements onto the rocks below. It could be argued that this may not be the spirit of the unfortunate prisoner, but the overpowering stench of dung has been witnessed immediately after. Not all spirits in the castle wish you harm. In fact, some will protect you and love you unconditionally. So I'll leave you today with the story of a good boy. Within the castle walls is a very special cemetery. A cemetery that dates back nearly 200 years and is dedicated to the bravest of the brave. The dogs who belong to the soldiers stationed there. A poet once wrote, Burke and dugs here lie at rest, the yappin' worst, obedient best. Sudger's dugs and mascots tay still guard the castle to this day. One of the dogs laid to rest there still carries on fulfilling his duties beyond the grave. A scruffy-looking spectral black dog has been seen wandering the castle grounds, tail-wagging, bright-eyed and friendly. Many witnesses felt he was so real you could pet him. So if you ever visit Edinburgh Castle, remember to stop by the cemetery on the way out and bring some treats. You never know who or what you might meet. <laughs>